once again on this glorious day in which we commemorate the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, I bring you greetings. I am so glad that I can, with all the joy of all the saints of God in ages past, present to you Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. He is risen, brothers and sisters. Death could not hold him. Your sins cannot hold you. Jesus Christ has set you free. And so again, in the, in the, in the, in the sense of all this today, we will take a look at the, at the great message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we're going to do today is we're going to really uh, pick up on a theme that we developed on our Good Friday service. For those of you that were here, you might remember that what we did on our Good Friday service is that we took a look at the words of sinners from around the cross. The words of sinners from around the cross. Normally on Good Friday services, we consider uh, the words of Christ from the cross, the seven sayings of our Savior from the cross. But last Friday, what we did is we took a look at the words of sinners from around around the cross. And the reason why we did that is because we wanted to hear what sinners were saying about Jesus Christ as he was being crucified. And you remember what mocking he endured. You remember those truths that were truly true about him, the fact that he is the Christ of God, the fact that he was the chosen of God, the fact that he is the Son of God, all of these things were used as objects of mockery toward the Lord Jesus Christ. There he was hanging on the cross, and there he was bearing this shame that they heaped upon him. And one of the things that we said last Friday night was this, Tonight, that Friday, we had heard what sinners said about Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. But today we will hear what God the Father says about his Son. And God does make a declaration concerning his Son. And we read about this in Romans chapter 1. And so I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans, the first chapter. This is not necessarily a passage of Scripture that we immediately think of when we think of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our minds are oftentimes rightly drawn to the resurrection narratives, uh, those, uh, those narratives in the, in the gospel accounts where we see all the emotion and all the elation of a resurrected Savior, the surprise of an empty tomb, but the reality that Jesus Christ now is risen from the dead. But this passage here in Romans chapter 1, I think, has particular insight for us because, as I said before, it'll act as a connecting point between what we heard Friday, Friday on the lips of sinners and what we will hear now from God himself. You know, there is a sense in which we find in the scripture God speaks not only by way of his words, God spoke in times past of the fathers through the prophets we, we hear of in, in Hebrews chapter 1. We also know that God speaks to us in the scripture. How many times is the word of God, uh, there is, is the scripture called the word of God over and over again? But we also see that God speaks to us through great redemptive acts. And this is what we're going to see in this passage of scripture in front of us. God makes a declaration in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here are these words, Romans chapter 1. And we'll start with verse 1 and read down to verse 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Well, this passage of Scripture, as I said before, is not necessarily a passage that you would think of when you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I hope to show you it is a very, very important passage of Scripture for us. Because, as I said before, in this passage of Scripture, God himself is making a declaration. God is stating something. God is making something known. And it is in direct contrast to what we heard sinners say about Jesus Christ on the day of crucifixion. 
When he was being crucified, again, one of the first things they said, they referred to him as the king of Jews, the king of the Jews by way of mocking. And we're going to see that throughout the scriptures, when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he was vindicating that title concerning Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. We saw that they, that they uh, mocked him for this title of Christ. They, he, he, there, there they were saying, oh, you are the Christ of God. If you are the Christ of God, come down from the cross. And you remember what we said Friday, Christ would not come down from the cross in order that you and I might never have to suffer the, the, the wrath of Almighty God. And so many of these things that were said in derision toward Jesus Christ, God the Father is making a declaration of here by way of vindication. And we'll bring all this out as we work through the passage. But the first thing I want you to think with me along the, uh, the first thing I want you to think with me today is along these lines. I want you to think and just be aware of the fact, as I said before, we don't often use this passage of scripture for a passage on the resurrection, but it's worthy of it. Normally what we do, as I said before, we think of all the tender elements that are oftentimes associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see in the gospel accounts the, the women going to the grave. You know, to the tomb, and just stop and think of what must have been in their mind as they were walking to the tomb on that morning. I'm sure they were exhausted from the from the previous days of all the things that were going on, and that was the least of their difficulties. I'm sure they were despondent. I'm sure they were dejected. I'm sure there was something of trepidation and fear as to what the future might bring. I'm sure that they were confronting the future with a sense of what now. And it's an amazing thing to see, isn't it, on that resurrection morning, that where, in many cases, their faith may have been dampened, yet their love brought them to the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing to consider on the resurrection morning, isn't it? They go with, in one sense, a bruised faith. They go really, truly, as a smoking flax and as a bruised reed. Oh, but you see, on that resurrection morning, they received strength. And what did they receive strength from? They received strength from the reality of the resurrected Christ. But this idea of a devotional understanding of the resurrection of Christ is right and proper. And as a matter of fact, what I would say to you is this. I hope in your mind and in your heart and in your soul that there is a true devotion for Jesus Christ. A devotion, again, that identifies with Jesus Christ, not only in his sufferings, but now in his resurrection as well. That the heart is moved toward Christ. That there is something not only by way of a structural faith that informs us by way of what the resurrection is all about, what the death of Christ means, but I hope and I pray that there is a true longing within the soul, within the heart, for the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ to you is altogether lovely. And that your heart was grieved when you saw him or when you read of him, spit upon and mocked, bearing the shame. That you saw there not just Jesus of Nazareth, but you saw your Jesus you remember when, when Mary's at the tomb and, and she sees uh, the angel. And what did she say? What did they do with my Lord? You see the personal pronoun there. You see Jesus is mine. Jesus is yours. And again, this idea of devotion when we consider the resurrection, I hope it's there. I hope you truly do have a, a true devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy of that love. You know that, don't you? You see what he did for you on the cross. And you see, again, the wonderful thing that God did on behalf of him that you might be saved. He raised him from the dead. And so here is, again, a way that we often look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we consider the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from a devotional standpoint. Again, we see this in, 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 in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 16. Uh, but Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. Stop and think of what that must have been. There, here comes Mary to the tomb, to the sepulcher. And it bad enough, everything that had happened the past few days... 
What must have been in her mind the first thing that she saw the stone rolled away? Did she think vandalism? Did she think somebody who had such a hatred for Jesus of Nazareth wouldn't even let him lie in the, in the tomb at peace? Remember what we said last Friday. These wicked men would not even let a good man die in peace. They had to mock him every step of the way. And there he was on the cross, you remember what we said, being, being tempted even of Satan. Remember what we said about that, that accusation. Again, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Those were the exact words that Satan said to him in the temptation in the wilderness. Christ, as he was bearing your sins and my sins, was still undergoing temptation. Yet through it all, he was sustained. Through it all, he bore our sins. And this is why, again, there is this love for the, by, by the people of God for the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was Mary thinking when she saw this open tomb? Again, did somebody vandalize it? Did somebody, again, show further disrespect to the body of Jesus Christ? Verse 12, and she, and she stooped within and she sees two angels, white, yeah, white and sick, and that must have encouraged her. Rather than, even though the body wasn't there, at least the angels were there. In verse 13, and they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, listen to what she said. She saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord. This is phenomenal. Yes, there's a devotional element here, but it's, it's fantastic. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ from Mary's perspective, dead, but she's still her, she is, he is still her Lord. He may be dead in her mind, but he's still her Lord. Oh, you see this thing about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Death will not separate it. Love will not allow it to be so. Reality may seem to crash in on the faith that I profess, but this love for Jesus Christ seems to sustain Mary in all this. Isn't it wonderful? You see the devotional elements of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will not be without them. Again, we can get, sometimes people can get overly sentimental, but again, God forbid that we should not again be moved by this reality of devotion and love to Jesus Christ. You remember, uh, again, how that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, from this devotional element, uh, really brought great joy to the disciples. And it's understandable. It's kind of interesting in John chapter 20, verse 20, the King James is very reserved in its, uh, in its uh, expression. And you know how I appreciate the King James, how I use it in my preaching. But listen to what the King James says here uh, by way of the, the joy of the disciples here. Again, the devotional element. And when, the, and when he had said so, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is risen and speaking to the disciples. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now, I don't know why, but the King James uses something of understatement here. The NIV, which I don't quote from that often, the NIV says this. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I think that catches it a little better. I think they were overjoyed when they saw the resurrected Christ. I think there was great joy. And again, as I said before, these are some of the devotional elements that come into the, the preaching of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we often do it from that perspective, and there's nothing wrong with that. That we should elicit, again, this kind of godly and sanctified uh, emotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with that at all. And then, of course, we remember the great words of Thomas as he sees uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, 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 he's moved here. And what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. Oh, you see, my friends, I preach to you a personal risen Savior. And can you say with Thomas and can you say with Mary, my Lord, it was my Lord who was raised. It was my Lord who was brought out of the grave. It was my Lord who was coming for me again. And so you see there's nothing wrong with approaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from this devotional element. 
But that's not the only way that we often at uh, times approach uh, uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and maybe some of us who, who maybe think that we're more like intellectually uh, in, inclined or more academically inclined, we oftentimes approach the resurrection not from a devotional standpoint, but from a doctrinal standpoint. And this is understandable as well. Because we know, we understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, that if Christ be not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. And so we affirm and we state in a very forthright way that whatever we might think about the, about the, uh, the Christian faith and whatever we might think about uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ by way of all the devotional elements, we have to understand that there are some facts that we have to lay on the table and facts that we have to, to affirm. And this is absolutely true. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel has substance to it. That Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. These are the facts of the gospel. And those facts are essential. Why are they essential? Because I want you to see and understand that you see that God's purposes for humanity is not merely 70 years, 80 years on this earth and then a return to dust. God has bigger plans for you than just dust. You see, again, and the reality of that is all based on the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is truly the cornerstone of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, is really the basis of all Christian proclamation. Jesus Christ speaks of his resurrection at least six times, six times I believe it is, uh, in the gospel accounts. Speaks about his coming resurrection. The, the, the New Testament 104 times mentions the resurrection. The resurrection is the cornerstone upon which the Christian faith is built. And we can't shy away from it. We can't be so overly devotional that we forget about the fact that there is a, sub, a, a substantial reality here that we must know, we must affirm, and we must proclaim. And so again, oftentimes we speak about the, the doctrinal elements of the resurrection, and we, we're, pro, we're right in doing that. Stop and think of some of the doctrinal implications that the resurrection brings to us. And number one, you, I think you know you're familiar with the fact that your salvation is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know that, right? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Thou shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead. See, there is no Christianity apart from a resurrected Christ. Why is that? Because a, a, a Savior who is still in the grave cannot save a Savior who is still under sin's best punch, if I can put it that way, is still under the power of that punch. But when Jesus Christ rises from the dead, when, when death expends its full energy on Christ and is left wanting, you see, Christ now comes victorious. And what I'm saying to you is this. This is all pointing to the fact that God has glorious plans for his creation. The plans for his creation are not comprehended in what we see here and now. As I said before, God has better plans for you than just return to dust. His plans for you are a coming glory, a glory that's commensurate with the glory that we see in Jesus Christ. And so the doctrinal basis, some of the greatest uh, elements of uh, our understanding of salvation all come to us, again, by way of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this doctrinal element to the resurrection and Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, that Jesus Christ was put to death and then raised again uh, for our justification. In Romans chapter 6, our, 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 all of our sanctification is based upon the fact of the resurrected Christ. Your sanctification, you know that thing that we, that we talk about, your Christian holiness that makes you a happy person in this life? Yes, holiness will make you happy. 
It will make you happy. Every time you live according to the law of God, you'll be a happier person for it. And that sanctification, that personal holiness, is based on the power of the resurrected Christ. Why are you able to say no to sin? It's because the resurrected Christ resides in you. The idea of, uh, uh, of our awareness of, of being united to God in Christ is all bound up in the resurrection. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 3, and I don't know if I have that in my notes, I do. Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, actually 1 through, um, uh, 1 through um, 3, we read the following. If ye then be risen with Christ, now notice this. If ye then be risen with Christ, again, King James here puts it in a question, it's really an affirmation. Since you are risen with Christ, is what Paul is saying. You see, you are joined together with Christ in his resurrection. That's what gives the power of sanctified living. That's what gives the power of holiness. Since you are risen together with Christ, he says this, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of the, of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And then in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then ye shall also appear with him in glory. This is what I'm saying. Do you understand? God's future for you is not dust. God's future for you is glory. And when Christ shall appear, you shall appear with him in glory. So we, we speak about the, the doctrinal elements of, of, of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, much like with the devotional elements, it is right and proper uh, that we do it. So there's the devotional element of the resurrection. There's the doctrinal element of the resurrection. But we're, 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 we're preaching this sermon with a, with a purposeful connection to what we saw Friday night, where sinners had their say about Christ, where sinners had their way with Christ, where sinners seemed to be the ones who were in control of everything, where it, where it seemed as though hell was in session. So we want to see what does God have to say about this crucified Savior, what does God have to say about this one who is his son? Why well, bring you back to Romans once again, chapter 1, verse 3. Notice again what he said, I'm sorry, verse 4. Notice again what, what Paul says here. And declare to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now this is a very, very important passage of scripture. It's an important passage of scripture because it really sums up in one sense the nature of the person of Christ as well as the effect of his work. You see, in verse 3, Paul talks about Jesus Christ as a descendant of David. And what that means and what this reference is there too, there too is the, the true humanity of Jesus Christ. The true human nature of Jesus Christ as one descended from David. So because he is a descendant of David, he encompasses all the messianic promises. That's the reference there as a descendant of David. So as a true man, he represents truly humanity. He lives as a true man among men. But he's more than that. And this is the amazing thing that we see. He's in the passage of scripture here. He is declared to be the son of God with power. And this expression declared to be the son of God with power is interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, the word declared here is, as I said before, it gives us that sense of, okay, what is God saying about all this? God's making a declaration here. Well, the word declare really has the idea of to set off in the horizon so that there's something seen by way of contrast. You know what the horizon is. The horizon sets off the atmosphere from the sea, but it's out there to be seen. That's the idea. And Jesus Christ, again, is out there to be seen, so to speak, by way of the resurrection. You remember what we emphasized about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ when Pilate wrote in Hebrew and Aramaic and in um, 
and in uh, uh, Latin, uh, uh, the, uh, the the words "This is uh, this is the King of the Jews," and the idea uh, there was that so that as so that Jesus as the King of the Jews would be as broadly known as possible. Well, God is doing that now by way of the resurrection. He is setting Christ out for all to see. And so, and so God is declaring, making known Jesus Christ as the Son of God according to the resurrection. Two more things I want you to see before we get into some of the more uh, pertinent elements here by way of what this passage is all about. This idea, this reference to him as the Son of God has two uh, implications to it. Number one, the title Son of God has a reference to who he is in his essential nature. He is truly God's Son in His essence. In His being, He is the second person of the Trinity. He is truly the Son of God. And that's what this passage of Scripture is saying. But also, not only that, this passage or this rough, this uh, phrase has reference to an office that He holds. He is the true Son of God, the King of David. He is the true Son of God, the descendant of David. He is the true Son of God, the King of Israel. That's the reference that's being made here. Now, what's significant about all that is the following, that what we heard on Friday was that there was mocking and accusation made against Jesus Christ for the four titles that were ascribed to him. Number one, the king of the Jews. Number two, the Christ. Number two, I'm sorry, number three, the chosen of God. Number four, the son of God. These four titles, which truly were his, were used as a form of mocking and derision. But what does God have to say about this? In the resurrection, God is vindicating every one of those titles concerning Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, God himself is saying that these things are true of my son. Why do we say that and where do we see this? Well, we, why we say this is because of what the text itself says. God is declaring him to be the son of God with power. But I want you to see this along a number of other lines too. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, again, was proclaimed as king. You remember in the preaching of the early church. In Acts chapter 17, there were these accusations that were made against the church and against the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And one of the accusations that they made to the Roman authorities of what the early church was preaching was this. They preached that there was another king, one Jesus. You see, the church proclaimed Jesus Christ as king. Why? Because when God raised him from the dead, God was making that statement. And therefore, the church would continue to make that statement. And therefore, you and I say that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, as we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. And so again, God vindicated this claim that his son made, that he was indeed the King of the Jews. The second term that we saw here was this term Christ. And again, they were mocking him. Oh, you who claim to be the Christ, take yourself down from the cross. But you see, again, in the scriptures as well, the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed by the church as the Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is, again, declared to be Christ because of that work of, resurre that work of resurrection. And so, again, in, the, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 30, uh, Peter preaching says this, God stated, again, in the Old Testament that he would raise up Christ so what does Peter do on the basis of the resurrection? He goes into the Old Testament. He says, look, that very title with which you mocked Jesus of Nazareth is the very title that God himself applies to him when he raised him from the dead. So there he is, the king of the Jews. And there he is, the Christ. But also, again, we see this title, the chosen one. Oh, again, this was something, again, could you imagine the, uh, the, the, what it must have sounded on the ears of the Lord Jesus Christ? All this, all this mocking coming his way, all the things that he had said about himself now supposedly being thrown back in his face. And there he was hanging on the cross, suffering. 
But even this term, the chosen one of God. And that's again, chapter 2, in that great Pentecostal sermon, Peter refers to Christ as thine, referring to God, as thine holy one. Christ is God's holy one. He truly was the chosen of God. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows to us. And then that last statement, the Son of God. Again, here was the thing that was very, here were the very words that Satan had used in the in the wilderness to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. There was a great challenge. That was the form of temptation. Exert yourself in your rights as the Son of God. The great temptation. Now there he was on the cross. Those same words ringing in his ears. He heard those words before. He knew where those words were coming from. It was the very temptation that he had experienced in the wilderness, and he was experiencing temptation now again on the cross. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ knew in and of himself who he was, and he would not back away from it. And he would go to he would go to the cross and he would stay on the cross in order that you and I might be saved. But this this title, the Son of God, again in Acts chapter 3. Here's Peter again uh, preaching, and he says this in his prayer. He says, they have crucified, you, you, have, you have crucified his son, Jesus. What a title for Jesus. His son. Whose son? God's son. And you see here in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he's declared to be the son of God by a great proclamation of power. That's what the resurrection is. And so we see here in this whole kind of layout and this whole approach uh, to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, these three ways in which the resurrection is often understood. Sometimes it's, a, it's approached from a devotional level. And I hope you are moved to true devotion in Jesus Christ. I mean that sincerely. And why do I say that? Because I don't want, I'm going to be very careful here. But notice that how shaken these disciples must have been in their faith. When everything that Jesus was saying now seemed to be crushed. When Jesus again was declaring himself as to be again the, the, the son of God. And now those nailing him to the cross mocking him for that very term. And maybe they would have thought well maybe I was mistaken here. Maybe they would have thought boy what did, did I miss it. Maybe they would have thought oh what, am, what are people going to think of me now. And what may have been the crushing or the pressing down of their faith. They were still sustained by love were they not it was love that brought those ladies to the to the tomb it was love that sustained them and so again i say to you consider the resurrection of jesus christ from its devotional element don't miss out on it but not only it's devotional element it's not the devotional element if i can put it this way again really again has to be uh, firmed up and it has to be firmed up by the doctrinal element and in this doctrine element, understand that you preach a crucified and risen Savior. The early church never gets away from this, does it? You, you know and you understand how easy it would have been for the Apostle Paul in the, in the atmosphere of the intellectuals of this day to talk about Jesus as a great moral teacher, to talk about Jesus as a, as a, as a kind example of what a moral philosopher can and ought to be. He never does that, though, does he? He goes again into the world of the academics, but he preaches who and what? He preaches a crucified Christ, a, a, a Savior who is not only crucified, but is risen again. And so what I'm saying to you is this, never move away from the doctrinal aspect of the crucifixion. Never forget that your faith, your hope, your salvation, your justification, your sanctification, your hope of future glory is all bound up in Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Never lose sight of this doctrinal element. But this last point, again, this declarative element of the resurrection is really what I want you to think about. 
especially in light of what we heard Friday night. You heard the words of those sinners. You saw what they did to him. And you heard what they said. And there we were leaving Friday night with this question, what does God have to say about all this? Well, I want you to see and I want you to understand that God has spoken. And God has spoken very clearly. And he's made a declaration. And that declaration is essentially this, that Jesus Christ is truly his son. And that all those who have faith in him will be raised to a future glory. My friends, what this Resurrection Day teaches you is this. God's future and God's plans for you, as I said before, are not dust, but glory. You may have come from dust. God may have created you out of the dust of this world, out of the dust of the earth. But the future for you, for all those who look to Jesus Christ in faith, is a glorious future. And so I set before you Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Embrace it devotionally. Understand it doctrinally. But hear, hear it declaratively as to what God says. It is God's declaration that everything that Jesus Christ said about himself was true. It is God's declaration that everything that Jesus Christ taught by way of salvation is true. It is God's declaration that everything that Jesus Christ says about you and me is true. And so as we close out this, this resurrection morning service, I want to ask you these questions and I want to pre present something to you. You've heard what sinners have said about him. You've heard what God the Father has said about him. I ask you the question, what do you say about him? Is he your risen Lord? Is he the Lord that you look to for salvation and for hope to bring you to that glory that he has designed you for? Let us pray.